It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. This episode of the podcast is going to be very timely because we're talking about issues in election law and particularly voting purges and other legal issues that are going on that are going directly at the heart of democracy and how our electoral system is working or not working, as many think. And my guest is attorney Harold Franklin. Hi, Harold. Good morning, BJ. Glad to be here. Welcome to Law Talk. And he is perfect for this particular episode. He he is an attorney and partner at King and Spalding Law Firm, one of the largest law firms in Atlanta, and actually a firm that has a national presence. In addition to that, he has been the former president of the Atlanta Bar Association, the past president of the Gates City Bar Association, which is the Bar Association of the African American Community in Atlanta. And most importantly, and why he's here joining me today, he is chair of Georgia's Election Protection Project. He is on the front lines looking at the legal issues and challenges that are happening right now and, in fact, being litigated in a courtroom in Atlanta, Georgia, as we are taping this this morning. So let's go, Harold, to what are the issues that are front and center with the potential purging of voters from the rolls in Georgia. And to our guests, as you know, I'm in Atlanta, um, but this is not just a Georgia issue. There are many states struggling with it, but it happens to be that the Georgia race in particular has been in the national news because one of the candidates for governor is the secretary of state who administers and is in charge of the election process, which has added a different wrinkle than what other states are seeing. So let's start with what the most recent litigation is with voting purges. So, BJ, I think it's important to look at this in context. Uh, The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law is um, a nonpartisan organization, and Election Protection is the nation's largest nonpartisan coalition um, of voting rights advocates Uh, volunteers and others who are really working to ensure that the system itself is fair, that we work to prevent disenfranchisement and to ensure the integrity of the process. So that's the background of the framework. So so it is, this is an organization that you are working with, that there are Republicans involved, there are Democrats involved, there are Libertarians involved. It it is a cross-section of who is involved in our electoral system in the United States. Right. It, it is. The Lawyers Committee is made up of board members from across the country at the nation's largest law firms and mid-sized law firms. And we have many uh, grassroots coalition partners, other grassroots organizations that comprise um, the Election Protection Coalition. We do not care, nor do we ask or care to know anyone's political affiliation. And so, yes, over the years, we certainly have had volunteers of all political stripes who are involved 
really to help protect the integrity of the process. If you look back in terms of how this program came into being, and really the Lawyers Committee, this committee was formed really at the behest of President Kennedy in 1963. And it was to involve and engage the private bar lawyers across the country at preeminent law firms in the important civil rights work of the day. And so we look back to 1963, there was a tremendous need. And unfortunately, there is still a tremendous need for lawyers to really engage in very important civil rights issues of the day. And so election protection is a major component of that. And so that is, you know, one of the things that we focus on as an organization, but a lot of other things as well. And so I'm on the board and also I'm regional vice chair of the organization. And so we do a lot here in Georgia, especially on the voting rights, election protection front, every election cycle. And this cycle is particularly busy. It is indeed. Um, this program came about um, after the 2000 election in light of all the distrust and concerns about uh, our electoral system. And this program has really been in full force uh, for many years now. And so we, we work and recruit volunteers. And I'd like to talk about that also at some point today, but we certainly need more volunteers. They're mostly lawyers, but we certainly have a lot of folks who are not lawyers who are involved. We have a lot of grassroots partners who are involved in this also. So everyday citizens who don't have a legal background can get involved in the program. And we work, we have a command center with over 100 volunteers. And then we have also in the field, lawyers who work in the field and others or grassroots partners who work in the field going to polling places based on where we believe there will be problems. And when I say we believe, we work closely with election officials each election cycle. That is something that I think makes our program very strong because we have relationships with those county election officials so that as issues arise in the early voting period or on election day, we are able to engage and reach out directly to those election officials to get them involved and to solve problems in real time for voters. And so that's been our focus. We have met with the Secretary of State's office, which we do each election cycle, and election officials throughout many of the larger metro Atlanta counties. And our grassroots partners are also throughout the state working with election officials. You know, Georgia has 159 counties, so you can imagine what a massive undertaking this is. And early voting has already started. So the issues are already happening as opposed to maybe a slower rollout. We have record numbers of early voters. So you're seeing the problems now where people are showing up to the polls, believe that they are a registered voter and finding out they are not on the list as a registered voter. Tell me about that situation and what litigation is going on with it. So there, there are several ways that that can happen. Uh, many people are aware that Georgia is quite unique. And unfortunately, Georgia has been characterized by many of late as um, the epicenter of voter suppression. And when you hear that, you know, a lot of folks wonder, well, what does that mean? Background here. 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court in the Shelby County decision versus Holder decision struck down the key provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And what was that provision? The Voting Rights Act of 1965 really protected and guaranteed um, after, you know, the, the post-civil um, rights era, 
it guaranteed that African-Americans would be able to, and other minorities would be able to vote and to have their vote counted. And there was a provision called Section 5, which required that if county election officials and uh, other election officials wanted to implement any type of new voting requirement changes, protocols, et cetera, before you do that, you have to get what's called preclearance. You have to get it approved by the Department of Justice. And the, so, Na- the U.S. Department of Justice. The United States Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., correct. And so that was a requirement. And that is something that really helped prevent a lot of the disenfranchisement and voter suppression tactics uh, that had occurred for many, many years before leading up to the Voting Rights Act. What happened in 2013, that provision was struck down. Section 5 was struck down. And almost immediately, literally within weeks of it being struck down. And why was it struck down? It was struck down because the there was a coverage provision that provided that there were certain municipalities, states, uh, electoral divisions that were covered by the Voting Rights Act based on a, a history of documented past discriminatory practices, voter suppression practices. And so those were recovered and it was more than 40 years old. The Supreme Court held that the formula was outdated, that the data was old, that the nation had changed so much. Um, And you've, of course, had the first black president, Barack Obama, and that there was, uh, some argued, uh, not as much of a need for the protection, but it was mainly that it was outdated. The coverage formula was outdated. And so that was the basis of it being struck down. But when it did, BJ, again, with lightning speed and precision across the country, you have states, uh, municipalities that are rushing to implement voter ID laws and other types of provisions that have been shown and proven to drastically disproportionately target and remove minorities from the voting rolls and to challenge their ability to even register. And so it was all done. Uh, much of it has been done in the name of uh, voter security to prevent voter fraud. It really is sad that it is a solution looking for a problem because there is no widespread voter fraud. Voters don't, uh, under penalty of, of perjury and conviction, being prosecuted, don't impersonate other voters to go and vote. And so you're looking, these proposed solutions to preventing voter fraud disenfranchise thousands, hundreds of thousands and more Voters, For example, here in Georgia, you've heard about the exact match system. And the exact match system is if you're going to the polls and you bring your ID, your name, address, all your identifying information must be exactly the same as it is on that card. And if it's not, you're either your ballot going in a provisional pile, which means it may or may not be counted, um, or you may not even be allowed to vote. So to your point, the way the exact match system works, and it's got a long history. We don't have time to go through it, but I'm happy to talk about it if you'd like. What it does is it, it really affects voters in the, who are in the process of trying to register to vote so that if any of their, to your point, any of the data, a name, a hyphen in a name, a misspelling address, anything that is uh, does not exactly match what is in the DDS, the Department of Driver Services, or the Social Security Administration database. If it does not match those, then you've got a problem. And it's put into what they call pending status, which calls into question your ability to be able to vote. And so here in Georgia, 
Uh, this system was something that was put in place by the Secretary of State's office. Uh, years ago, it was challenged by the Lawyers Committee and other organizations. It was ultimately uh, the part, the, the court ruled in favor of the Lawyers Committee that this system was not appropriate. And after that, the parties reached an agreement on how it would work. Subsequent to that, though, the Georgia legislature implemented the same exact match system so that now it is a matter of law that that is what has been in place. And so that is what has happened most recently is that this system has been used to affect over 53,000 Georgia voters who were otherwise eligible to vote, who properly registered to vote, and over 70% of them are minority, and most of them are African-Americans. And so with these types of policies put in place, again, preclearance is not required anymore. So these procedures can be put in place by election officials, and they can have devastating effect on in suppressing the minority vote, largely. You know, a lot of people say, well, these sound like they are benign. You would need a scalpel to be any more precise in terms of implementing these protocols and procedures and their ability to target and to remove and to challenge minority voters, African-American voters, and others in this process. Again, 53,000, 70% of them minorities, most of whom are African-American. And so you've got that happening. You also have recently the rejection, the mass rejection of absentee ballots, thousands and thousands. That is a state, that's a statewide issue that has happened. There have been many voter registration drives and encouragement of voters by the political parties to, to vote uh, absentee ballot, to cast your ballot early or to engage in early voting. And so of those and there's been a lot of talk about Gwinnett County in particular, but thousands— Which is a suburb of the metropolitan Atlanta area. It is a very large um, county that has a shift. I mean, it was a very strong Republican stronghold, and then demographics, as they are in any especially growing metropolitan area, a lot of minorities, African Americans, Hispanics have moved in, and the breakdown of that particular county has changed. And yet a lot of the people who are still in power um, represent the old guard of Gwinnett County, and then you have the new guard coming in wanting to vote and is that part of what's contributing to this particular hot spot in Gwinnett County and how they're dealing with elections? So, BJ, that is the, the concern, is that you've got these protocols, procedures that have been put in place without any oversight, any uh, need for approval, and they are uh, dramatically, disproportionately affecting minority voters in particular. So in Gwinnett County, uh, I think I've seen some of the statistics, which I will not quote here, but you will find a multiple, it, it is so much more prevalent that the affected absentee ballots belong to minority and African-American in particular voters. And so that is the concern, obviously, that this, and that was the basis of the challenge is that you're rejecting uh, these absentee ballots. There's been a lot of discussion about, well, what's the basis of it? Um, it's an eyeball test of looking at the signature and then deciding, a person deciding whether or not they think it appears to match the signature in the, the, the voter rolls or in the files. And so when you have that, for example, if I sign something, my signature may not look different today versus tomorrow. Hopefully it will be similar. But those kind of arbitrary, subjective, subjective, subjective um, is the word, yeah, to use, use to disqualify and to reject outright 
thousands and thousands of absentee ballots without first notifying the voter that we are concerned about your absentee ballot and we're going to give you an opportunity to come in and fix it. That wasn't happening. There and was, there and was, I'm going to interrupt you for a second in that the significance of the absentee ballot right now is that there were a lot of people who are concerned and then we're going to get to this about the voting machines, how old they are in Georgia. There are many other states that have the same issue of 15-year-old voting machines that may or may not work properly. And so that people thought, well, if I vote absentee, then I know it's a handwritten ballot I'm sending in and it's going to be counted. Right. So that's the other part is there are people who may not have voted absentee and are being disqualified this way, thinking that they are doing their utmost to make sure their individual vote counts. Right. Right. And unbeknownst to them, at least before the litigation, and there was an order that was issued by the Northern District of Georgia here last week. Federal court here. Federal court here, uh, in which it, it provided that that process could not be used. You could not discard those ballots, those absentee ballots that the county election officials had to immediately contact the voters who were affected and to give them an opportunity to come in and resolve the issue. That ruling, however has been challenged by the Secretary of State's office. Again, and the Secretary of State of Georgia is running for governor, right? Correct. Correct. Then the other part, again, in case there's just not another layer, but there are so many layers that actually goes, because a lot of the things you're talking about are fairly immediate, but the purging of the voting rolls going back over a year to two years ago, where if people were not voting, or there were some other discrepancy, they were being removed from the voting rolls and not that, able to. That, so they're showing up at the polls because there's a push now. You know, it's in our public consciousness at a level we've never seen. Numbers we have not seen in, I'm, I can't remember in my lifetime, so many people early voting. And then they're showing up and they can't vote. Right. BJ, I mean, to your point about the purges, uh, that is, you know, a separate issue. We've talked about the exact match system. Right. We've talked about the outright rejection of these absentee ballots. So in terms of purging, Georgia has drastically increased the number of voters who have been purged from the rolls. And, and the purging process in and of itself is not necessarily a, a nefarious thing. It's It's certainly part of List maintenance, something that, that is done. People die. People get convicted of, of, of crimes, et cetera. And so there, uh, people move and that kind of thing. And so you've got a process of what is called list maintenance. But I'll give you, for example, from 2008 to 2012, over 750,000 voters, Georgia voters, were purged. Now, if you look at the same time frame from 2012 to 2016, Instead of 750,000, it doubled. So now you're talking about 1.5 million Georgia voters, and, and we only have about 10,000 uh, in the state. And so you're looking at a very high percentage of voters who uh, are being purged from the system. And so what happens is— and, it, and some of the reasoning was, one, if you hadn't voted, voted in 10 years, that was one reason— um, well, well, let me say this. I mean, the county election officials may send out a, a, a correspondence asking for you to update if anything has changed, et cetera. If there's no response by the voter to that, then the person can be placed in what's called pending status. Then if they do not vote in two 
uh, federal election cycles after that, they are removed from the voter rolls. So you can't vote anymore unless you go and re-register. And that's assuming that you know that you've been removed. So that's one way it happens. And um, and so, if, again, if you don't respond within 30 days, then you get removed from the voter rolls. And so that is that is one of the ways that it happens. So you're talking about really, if you just to look at the big picture, you're talking about purging practices that have drastically increased uh, in recent years in Georgia. You're talking about exact match, which has removed tens of thousands of voters or affected their ability or at least called into question their ability to vote. You're talking about the rejection based on a subjective an election uh, poll worker or someone at the election office looking at it and saying, I don't know if this sim- if this signature is similar enough and that being the basis without even notifying the voter. That's the background through which we are seeing these tactics that overwhelmingly affect minority communities. And it, it harkens back to the types of things that we saw before the enactment of the Voting Rights Act. I mean, you're looking at things like literacy tests, poll tests, poll taxes, measures that were put in place that notwithstanding the fact that you have this landmark legislation that gives to every American the right to vote, you're having efforts by the government, government officials at least, to um, suppress and disenfranchise voters. Um, And so it's the antithesis of democracy. This is against everything that our democracy should be about. And that's why it's important, I believe, for lawyers to really engage and to help ensure fairness. Again, it's nonpartisan. It's about fairness. It's about protecting civil rights, civil liberties. And I I will say this. Let me give out this this number. Voters in Georgia, uh, we encourage you to vote early. You have additional time to do that here. Uh, But if you encounter any problems in voting, we want you to call the following number. That number is 1-866-OUR-VOTE. That's O-U-R-VOTE. And that is for Georgia because I have a lot of listeners across the country and across the world. I know somebody in Abu Dhabi listens to me regularly. I can tell from my SoundCloud. And And so on a national level, I mean, every state has organizations such as the one that you are a part of that there is a place for you to find out what's happening. Well, I've got good news for you, BJ. Yes, give me good news. Because it's not Georgia-specific. Oh, of course, good, the phone I, I'm, number. I'm here oh. in Georgia. I'm here in Georgia. Good. But this that is phone a, number. Yeah. Oh, all right. This is Thank a you na- for clarifying. Yeah, this is a national effort with the Lawyers Committee, which partners with over 100 different organizations. Um, to put on this program. And so that number is nationwide. Excellent. And so voters, if you are encountering problems, we encourage you to confirm, at least here in Georgia, you can go to the Secretary of State's website to the My Voter page, and you can look and see whether or not you're active or whether you are pending or whether you're not on the rolls. And you you need to check because I'm going to tell you a story. You know, I love stories. But over a year ago, I have a physical address where I live, and I added a P.O. box. I have certain mail. I just want to come to my P.O. box and not to my house. And my dad was a big P.O. box guy, and I remember as a little girl going with him every Saturday to check the box. So maybe there's a little sentimental. I have a thing about I like post offices. Right. Anyway, and that's a, that's an aside. But I all of a sudden get a notice in my P.O. box from the Secretary of State of Georgia saying that if I didn't respond within 10 days, I was not going to be allowed to vote. And the reason was on there was that I had a P.O. box and did not have a physical address. I did not 
change my address. I just purchased an additional P.O. box. I still got every bill. My driver's license had not changed. Nothing. Just that I now had a P.O. box. And I read it closely and I, within 10 days, so I know you're talking about numbers longer, but I just want to be clear, what I got, if I'm correct, maybe I threw it away. At that point in time, I didn't understand the significance of it. I thought it was odd. As I look back on what the history is being you know, revealed with regard to what's happening in Georgia and how the Secretary of State is changing things, that's a time period where a lot of people were already finding out they may or may not be on the ballot. Had I not gone perhaps to my P.O. box, you know, go the same way like I do to the one in my house in time, I would have had a probably harder time maintaining myself on the voter rolls. And now that I have already voted, I made sure I double-checked that website because I was so worried that I, I checked it after I, I mailed everything in, but I was just petrified that at that point I was going to be purged already. And in hindsight, I'm wondering how many other, I mean, that is a bizarre reason. I mean, yes, you have to have a physical address, but I had not changed it. So why all of a sudden does the Secretary of State not want me registered? That's what it felt like to me, at least. Well, what? You know, one of the things that is is most concerning, I mean, in the example that you gave, you were very, you're a lawyer, you were very proactive about it, but, and, and it sounds like, obviously, you resolved that issue before the registration deadline, but had you not done that, had you been removed, et cetera, or learned that you had been purged and you were not in, in the system, uh, it's too late. After October 9th, here in Georgia, at least, it's too late. You can't, you cannot vote in the next election. And so, this has you know, very serious implications, consequences to all of this. And again, we want and we have enjoyed the cooperation of our county election officials with whom we meet. They, you know, really try to work to help us to resolve problems in real time. But it's very concerning that the system is such that you have these measures that are put in place with scalpel-like precision, which affect and target and challenge uh, minority communities, uh, and, well, and it harkens and, back and to the beyond, things that were done beyond, before, right? And beyond, beyond, right? In other correct. words, any voter, right? I mean, I don't know. Had they looked at my um, right. background and seen which primary I vote in? I mean, because when you have, you know, we're at this election now, where there's a Democrat, there's a Republican, maybe there's a Libertarian or another third party on the ballot, but in the early stages, you're choosing to vote in a primary, a Republican primary, or Democratic primary. Right. So there is a track record right. that which primary party you're going to go to. So part of me, you know, wonders, was there a look at more Democrats who now have P.O. boxes? Or, you know, I don't know. I'm not, And I'm not saying that happened, but it shows the layers of information that our government has about us and how important it is in terms of elections that it is that nonpartisan spirit and the encouragement of voting rather than the discouragement of voting. That, that's, an, that's perfectly phrased in terms of how you just described it. Again, we're nonpartisan. And so with us, it is and, and who knows in terms of why um, that may have happened. But what we do know is that um, it is un-American to prevent 
American citizens who are otherwise eligible who have registered um, from being able to vote and for their votes to be counted. Um, you know, another point uh, I'd like to tell voters is that as a last resort, we don't want you to do this. We want you to, and, and I should have mentioned also, the, those 53,000 folks who have been put on the pending status list, um, we want to encourage you to go out and to vote. You should be allowed to vote a regular ballot if you show up with one of the six forms of identification uh, that are required here in Georgia, at least, and you should be allowed to vote a regular ballot, not a provisional, but a regular ballot. Um, and that is if, because of the, the exact match system, if something doesn't match, for example, you're able to bring in your one of those six forms of ID. However, if you are a naturalized citizen, and if that is the reason that you are on the pending list, then you need to bring in your naturalization papers, and that has to be presented to a deputy registrar. If one is not available, then you would need to vote also a provisional ballot. The, the one thing about provisional ballots, they are a last resort. But if you don't go in and within three days of the election, so by November 9th, and resolve whatever the issue was, your vote will not be counted. And so a lot of people feel that, well, I was able to vote a provisional ballot and they think that's it. That is not it. It is not going to count. Okay, Period. so let if, so right. if let me make sure I'm clear. So if you are going to the polls and they say, BJ, you gotta use a provisional ballot, you mean to tell me that after I do that provisional ballot, it is on me to do one more thing? Correct. So what the, is the one thing I need to be doing? So that, the let's burden, be clear. The burden is on the voter. Uh, to go in and to cure whatever the alleged defect is. So if yours is uh, that there's an issue regarding um, a question about your residency, uh, if there's a question about or if uh, with your name, let's say you've gotten married or your name you your name has changed, et cetera, whatever that discrepancy is that has caused the the lack of of an exact match. Uh, we want you to try to resolve that in person on election day by bringing in the ID to clear that up, and then you should be allowed to vote. However, or bringing it, in the paperwork to show that I got married, or bringing like a, a marriage license, or bringing in other materials to show that I moved and that I have an electric bill at that location in my name that shows that that is in fact my residence. Correct, and that's if you're pending. That's if Under, I'm pe that's that, right. That, exactly. That's if you're if, pending. If, if if this is if you're falling in and filing a provisional ballot. Well, if you're pending and you bring in one of those forms of identification, you should not vote a provisional. You should vote a regular ballot. Okay. okay. However, if you are not if it doesn't resolve the issue and you are forced to or given a provisional, we don't want you to leave the polling place and not vote. If all, if all else fails, vote the provisional ballot. But understand that you have three days, 72 hours to go back in and to provide whatever information is missing to cure the defect, or it will not count. And if you are confused, again, that's where that election protection phone number comes in because, you know, there are a lot of good people who work. It's hard to get to the polls. They they have jobs. They have family. They have a lot of other commitments. And so to go and vote a provisional ballot and then have to come back within three days, I'm certain, again, that if you call this phone number, you may get some guidance about what you could bring in to help resolve it. Right. You know, another important thing is to make sure that, you know, if you were at a polling place and if you you mentioned earlier, for example, if if uh, and we have heard 
complaints about the machine switching candidates, et cetera. Do not press cast ballot. You raise your hand, you get a poll worker, or you call one eight six six our vote. Once you press cast ballot, it's over. With yes, because these we, are electronic voting machines. And one more thing, because we're getting near the end with these electronic sure. machines, right. is there has been some issues that are s- circulating in the media where you were voting. And then you get the refresher page at the end that reviews your vote, and it's not the vote you made. They're seeing another name. So if I vote for Jane Doe, and then at the end I'm seeing I voted for Joe Doe, what do I do at that moment before I hit cast ballot? In other words, I'm, I don't hit the button cast ballot, call an election official over to show them that what you pressed to vote is not showing up in the darn computer at the end at the summary. I couldn't have said it any better. Once you press cast ballot, it's over. Nothing can be done. Okay. But if you get someone beforehand and let them know, uh, you can start over whatever you need to do, but and do not press cast ballot. Don't press cast ballot, and but you can't bring out your phone because you're not allowed to take a photograph in a election area. Right. And so you've got to literally stop and get one of those kind, wonderful people who put their time in to work there and say, come back over here and look at this. That's right. Okay. But we want you to call us also. And call election Correct. protection. Across the country. Across the country. Yes. Whew. Yes. Harold, you know, this, this is... has been, I, I can't thank you enough because as y'all can tell from some of my questions, I'm learning as we're talking today. And there is nothing more that we can do is there are two things in our as a citizen of the United States, we can vote and we can serve on a jury. Those are the two things that every person can do. There's those wonderful people who serve us in the military, who serve in elected officials, who serve us in their volunteer work. But the fundamentals of our system requires you to vote and to be a juror when called upon to help assess and decide. And it is critical right now, again, no matter what your politics are, no matter who you are going to vote for, whether we're going to cancel each other out, I want you to vote and I want me to vote. And I want every single person who has the right to vote to use that so that it is a government of the people, which is what we were created to do. And on that note, You've been sipping a cup of tea. I have. And everybody knows that with each episode, I choose particular tea. And the tea that you are drinking, you you told me at the beginning, before we recorded, you could taste the chamomile. But what the other part of it was, there's licorice root in our tea. And the reason I chose this one is this, that licorice root on a spiritual level by many is believed to be a root that helps with power and control. And, (laughs) you know, the whole controversy they have right now is about the power and control of our democracy and that participation is critical and understanding your rights and exercising it gives the people power and control. When you give that up, I don't want to be part of what that looks like so we've been that's why i chose it for you harold and i can't thank you enough for your work and what you're doing and sharing your great knowledge with us thank you bj and thanks for all you do 
It's been Law Talk. Thanks, everybody. Get to the polls. Yes. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. <laughs>